love good music. So do I. Let's get out of here. Sit down. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. I am New York's own Noah Diamond, the man who found humor risk and then lost it again before I had a chance to show it to anyone. But uh, (laughs) my desk is a mess here, but it'll turn up again. And I'm here today with three of the world's foremost wise guys. First, the exalted leader of the Marx Brothers Council, author, scholar, and raconteur, Mr. Matthew Conium. (laughs) Yes, I'm all of those things. Hello. I'm speaking from England at 10 p.m. at night, and it's as hot as high noon. And in honor of our guest, I'm drinking Cabernet Sauvignon from my son's Minion mug. (laughs) (laughs) Next, the inevitable and invaluable researcher and editor and misplaced Chicagoan and world-class kibitzer, Mr. Bob Gassell. Hi. Can I speak now? Is Les done talking yet? I think we're all a little less done talking. <laughs> and now, finally, our very special guest for this episode, our friend and yours, Mr. Cinco Paul, a true Marx Brothers fan and an acclaimed screenwriter responsible for modern classics like Horton Hears a Who, The Lorax, The Secret Life of Pets, and the Despicable Me films, which, as you undoubtedly know, are sprinkled with Marxian references as well as the stage musical Bubble Boy, based on his earlier film. Here he is, the one, the only... Cinco! That's me! Uh, Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, like so many artists who have been inspired by the Marx Brothers, Cinco loves to make references to them in his work. And uh, uh, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that, Cinco, your tributes to the Marx Brothers in your screenplays. Yeah, sure. I think there was a moment when we were making uh, Despicable Me 2 where it suddenly hit me that we were basically making a Marx Brothers movie. You know, that, 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 um, that the comedy was the most important part. You know, the first movie, there was a lot of heart to it. There was a big emotional story. And then at some point I realized, oh yeah, the, we're just, the plot is just there so that we can have a lot of fun. So, so, and, and actually several of the reviews, and this made me really happy, you know, mentioned the Marx Brothers in, in the reviews of the movie that it had sort of the, the spirit of that, which, you know, was like, the greatest thing I, I could ever hear. But so when we made Despicable Me 3, I took the opportunity to to uh, lay in some references. We have the, the – Gru finds out he has a, a long-lost brother who lives in a country called Fredonia. And so we, we go all the way to Fredonia and spend most of the movie there. And uh, and then there's a – the MacGuffin is this diamond which has been stolen, which I named the Dumont diamond (laughs) in our in honor of maggie and uh i actually originally there were uh gru's brother had three little helpers that were his own and i i named them like julie lenny and and art and and uh but they they ultimately got cut it was sort of like his version of the own minions but they got cut i will say that the the reason i got involved in movies and screenwriting in the first place has everything to do with that first Marx Brothers movie I saw when I was 10, because that led me to look for other Marx Brothers movies. And I would go to the library and I would 
read all about the Marx Brothers and Chaplin and Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy. And, and that created that love, which, and then I, my parents had a Super 8 camera. And so I started making my own movies, just stealing all the gags from everything I was seeing. And, and that, I think if I possibly hadn't seen the big store, you know, that Saturday morning when I was 10, I would never have ended up in the movie business. Well, I think a lot of screenwriters looked at the big store and said, oh, I could do something better than that. <laughs> you know, I was 10, Bob. I was 10. Well, Cinco, you've worked with some of the funniest people in the world. And I wonder if you ever had a moment um, with uh, Steve Carell or Jim Carrey or Danny DeVito or anyone that was explicitly or otherwise uh, a Marxian moment. Yeah, you know what, like, uh, uh, Steve and I have talked several times about how there is a spirit of the Marx Brothers in the Despicable Me movies, particularly with the Minions and Harpo. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's definitely brought that up. Mm-hmm. I, I was always a, a huge fan of Siskel and Ebert, you know, and a dream as a kid had been like, I want them to review one of my my movies. And mm-hmm. uh and, you know, Gene passed away, but, but Roger was still reviewing when the Santa Claus 2 came out by, by second movie. Mm-hmm. And he opened the review. It was a positive review, amazingly mm-hmm. enough, but he opened the review by quoting Chico's Sanity Clause line from <laughs> a night at the opera, which is just my head basically exploded. You know, it's Roger Ebert and the Marx Brothers and, and reviewing a movie of mine. So mm-hmm. that was just a, a, a real happy moment for me. Music and comedy are like siblings. They go together. And if you have skills in one of these areas, you can probably handle yourself in the other. Music and comedy both have a lot to do with timing and rhythm and tempo, repetition, and even melody. The rise and fall of a vocal line is just as important to the efficacy of a joke as to a song. But even considering this, the Marx Brothers were, of course, in a class by themselves as musical comedians. And that's what we're going to talk about this episode. Each of us has selected some favorite or most interesting musical moments from the Marx canon, and we're going to discuss them right now. Matthew, would you care to get us started? Yes. Well, I was thinking in in general terms about their their career as um, as comedians who sing, comedians who sing songs in films, and it it occurred to me that that might be a little more accidental. Uh, than, than we think. And also that Kalma and Ruby might have had much more of a specific influence on, on how that came about. When a, when a stage comedian starts making films, it's always like beginning again. Um, and I think if Paramount had seen, uh, Coconuts on stage and thought, these guys are great. Let's get them over to Hollywood making screen originals. Then I think we would have had something like Monkey Business straight away. And I think that would probably have set a precedent for the, you know, the kind of films they made, maybe with the, the musical solos from, uh, from Harpo and Chico, but probably not with, with song numbers. But of course that, that didn't happen. Obviously they stayed in New York and they made the films of their two Broadway musicals. But actually even there, if you look at them, the musical content is pared down and particularly the Marx musical content. And so I wondered if, if at that point, the idea that they were film comedians who sing songs might have trailed away and, and vanished if it weren't for the fact 
that Karma and Ruby were then hired for Horse Feathers. And the interesting coincidence about them, obviously, is that, that they are screenwriters and songwriters both. So I wonder if they may have been hired as screenwriters. And then almost instinctively thought, well, you know, we write songs for them. Let's write some songs for them. And it's the most musical of all their movies in terms of the musical opportunities that the brothers themselves get. It's song packed for them. Um, and obviously that then kind of both shatters the precedent set by Monkey Business and and establishes a new one, which continues through Duck Soup, which has also got comedy songs for them in it. Things then change when they move to MGM. Kalma and Ruby were hired again for A Night at the Opera. They worked on it briefly. And then for whatever reason, uh, went away. But they were commissioned to write songs as well as uh, to, to write some, some script material. So it's interesting that when they did leave the project, nobody else was brought in to write songs. And one wonders if Thalberg maybe had an idea that the Marx Brothers shouldn't themselves be involved in, in singing. That's, that's for Alan Jones and Kitty Carlisle to do. And obviously in the next film, Day at the Races, uh, Groucho gets one of his most famous specialty numbers, Dr. Hackenbush, and that too disappears. Nobody's entirely sure when that happened, but somewhere in, in the 11th hour. That gets jettisoned. So it's almost as if, um, like when they first came to Hollywood, Thalberg is, is, is yet again changing the rules. It's interesting that when songs come back in At the Circus with Lydia and then Riding the Range and Go West and Sing While You Sell in uh, the big store, it's, it's slightly different in that Groucho's songs previously at Paramount, the songs in Animal Crackers and in Horse Feathers and in Duck Soup, address and advance the plot. They're absolutely in character. They're absolutely part of the scenes that they're, that they're contained within. Whereas the others in M at MGM, he just sings a song. He just comes on and he sings a song. So they're more like, more like a little specialty turn for him to do along the lines of the, of the harp and piano solos. So it is something very, very different and it is almost like a reinvention again. So one wonders if, if it hadn't been for Kalma and Ruby and Horse Feathers, if the, the whole notion of them being film comedians who sing songs uh, might have been something that they that they left behind on the Broadway stage and and never really became a feature of their of their screen work. I always have found it interesting that Groucho had no songs in the film version of Coconuts. Did he have anything that was cut that was uh, originally in the play? He did. His his big number in Coconuts is called Why Am I a Hit with the Ladies? Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> The, uh, the lyrics are available in the uh, published lyrics of Irving Berlin, and I believe Mark Bedard in his recent adaptation of Coconuts um, reinstated that number. But yeah, it does seem as though um, the Marx Brothers, as, as singers, were underused even in the Broadway years. I mean, in I'll Say She Is, as it was originally presented, they don't seem to have sung at all. I completely agree with your point, Matthew, that Kelmar and Ruby's involvement in the last two Paramounts probably is why Horse Feathers and Duck Soup feel like a return to Animal Crackers in many ways, and Monkey Business feels like an anomaly. Hmm. Let us move on then to our next uh, musical moment. Uh, what do you got, Cinco? Well, I was. Um, it's it's right on the topic of of Groucho and Kelmar and Ruby, and uh, I. I uh, think my favorite Groucho musical moment is actually just wait till I get through with it from Duck Soup. Mm -hmm. To me, this one is the sharpest, the funniest. It's kind of the darkest <laughs> with sort of the openly admitting to corruption and firing squads and, and <laughs> all those sort of things. It's also interesting, you know, Calmer and Ruby have a, a definite 
structure for Groucho's songs. They're almost two songs hooked to each other. Yes. You know, yeah. In, in, in Horse Feathers, it's uh, I'm against it, then I always get my man. And Animal Crackers, Hello, I Must Be Going, and then Hooray for Captain Spaulding. It's, it's a very interesting choice. Very that, true. That, that, that they make, which, you know, you, you just don't see that often uh, outside of these movies. But but I'm going to make a case for uh, just wait till I get through with it as the the ultimate Groucho song. For our information, just for illustration, tell us how you intend to run the nation. These are the laws of my administration. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke, and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. If chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the who's cow hidden. If we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. The last man nearly ruined this place. He didn't know what to do with it. If you think this country's bad off now, just wait till I get through with it. The country's taxes must be fixed, and I know what to do with it. If you think you're paying too much now, just wait till I get through with it. I will not stand for anything that's crooked or unfair. I'm strictly on the up and up, so everyone beware. If anyone's caught taking graft and I don't get my share, we stand them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. So everyone beware, crooked or unfair. Don't let the If any man should come between a husband and his bride, we find out which one she prefers by letting her decide. If she prefers the other man, the husband steps outside. We stand him up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. It seems to me maybe one of the things, one of the many things about the Kalmar and Ruby Groucho material that is kind of inherited from Gilbert and Sullivan. A lot of numbers with two different refrains or songs that evolve as they're going into other songs. I think they were pretty conscious of of emulating Gilbert and Sullivan huh. for Groucho. And sometimes it reminds me of that more than anything. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I feel like Horse Feathers is maybe the most joyful of the songs with all the beard pulling and the the, the dancing. And, and that's super fun. But I love the, the sharpness of this, of wait till I get through with it. And I know Matthew has issues with Duck Soup, so... Yeah, no. With Duck Soup, it's more with uh, with the with the comedy content. The 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 part of Duck Soup that I have no problem with whatsoever is the Carmine and Ruby stuff. So um, all the all the bits that that are like the previous movies, I love. It's just the kind of the new stuff. So the songs, um, or, or at least that song, um, I think is, is is right up there with with yeah with the with the best ones. I'm not too keen on Freonia's going to war. Not so much for the song itself as for the ridiculous way it's staged. I can't stand seeing those extras holding poses and and chico pulling silly faces and i just think i just think they've been they've been let go too much there and i just don't enjoy that at all but it's the you know it's the staging rather than the song itself i I find it interesting that matthew likes sing while you sell because to me that's kind of the anti-groucho song for me i i have a lot of trouble with that song because where where there's a lot of bite and uh 
and satire and and fun and and just wait till I get through with it. I mean, he's just he's like encouraging his employees to sing while they they sell. It just doesn't feel like Groucho at all to me. It's just it's that soft Groucho that I think we all dislike. I guess it is strange that he's, uh, you know, he's he's uh, exhorting them to to uh, to greater productivity. But at, at least he's not saying, you know, um, work extra hours or, or you know, uh, do your do your tie up, stand up straight. You know, he's it's uh, it, it's much more. You know, the idea the idea of singing and the idea, you know, you'll sell no pan without Chopin. Um, you know, it's 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 a million million miles from prime Groucho, of course. But it's you know, it's it it is at least silly. Uh, it is at least you know. So, um, there's, there's kind of a, a zaniness to it, and I just, I just enjoy it. I just find it. Um, I, I always did from the first time I saw it. I thought this, you know, this film has, has, has lifted here. It seems sort of of a piece with Lydia to me. Certainly not with the Paramount songs, but I wouldn't put it a billion miles behind Lydia. The, the thing that, that's much better with Lydia, obviously, is, is that some of that writing is so sublime. Uh, you know, eyes that focus it also, and a torso even more so. That's, that's lovely stuff. And there's nothing like that in Sing While You Sell. But I love the effervescence of it. I love, I love the bounce and the swing. I really do. Yeah. As a piece of songwriting, I don't think it's terrible, but I, yeah, I, I don't really like the idea of Groucho's, um, powers being put in service of this department store boosterism. You know, it doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't really seem worthy of him. Isn't it interesting that the songs in Duck Soup and Horse Feathers, we on, there's only one performance on record, you know, with all the other signature material, Captain Spaulding and Lydia. He, we have other examples of him singing those songs on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm Against It, which in some ways could be the ultimate Grouchovian statement. Uh, it's just that one time, as far as we know, he never sang it again. That's interesting. Well, I think I think part of it is probably because they were one-shot songs. You know, obviously the songs from Animal Crackers he'd have done over and over and over again. Yeah. He probably learned that song, recorded it, shot it, and then was done with it. Uh, Matthew, uh, you have, I believe, chosen a Chico moment to discuss next. Yes, it's a it's a bit of a cheat, really, because it's not really for the for the for the number itself. Although it is delightful, uh, it's his piano solo from Animal Crackers. And the reason for that is I've I've been absolutely fascinated for years by what he says before it. I tell you what I do. I play you one of my own compositions by Victor Hoyman. For for all those the years that I that I loved the Marx Brothers before I encountered anyone else who did, I always thought it was uh, Victor Herman, the director of the film. Um, his, his name is is spelt Herman, but it was pronounced Herman, ah. and I just assumed it was an in joke. I mean, you know, the, the joke obviously is here's one of my own compositions by somebody else. So you know, the, the name to some extent, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's still the same joke, and I just assumed it was it was Victor Herman. Then when I, I got talking to other people. They said, oh, no, 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 it's Victor Herbert. And I said, oh, right, why, why do you say that? And they said, well, because he's a composer, so it, it makes more sense. But really, it, it, it doesn't make more sense, because the piece he plays is Silver Threads Among the Gold, which is by H.P. Danks and Eben E. Rexford, and it's, it's not by Victor Herbert. So in a way, it's kind of clouding the joke to, to say, a real composer who isn't the composer. So that was always my position, and I, and I stuck to it rigidly. Then when I was researching the annotated Marx Brothers, I got hold of the um, the book of Kaufman scripts, uh, Kaufman & Co. And there it is, in black and white, Victor Herbert. So I changed that in my book. My book says Victor Herbert. Since then, I've changed my mind again, and I've changed my mind again for this reason. The 
original play script of Animal Crackers, uh, he goes on to play Gypsy Love Song, which is by Victor Herbert. So it makes perfect sense. He doesn't do that in the film. And the reason he doesn't do that in the film is because he'd already done that in the film mm. of the coconuts. Now, it's easy to to see why he did that. Obviously, you know, Chico is somebody who likes to put as little effort into what he does as possible. And they were shooting uh, coconuts while they were playing the stage version of Animal Crackers. So he thought, well, you know, why bother perfecting some other tune? I may as well do the one that I'm doing on stage every night. So he sneaks Gypsy Love Song into Coconuts, the film. So when we get to the Animal Crackers film, he's not able to do that anymore. So he changes the song and the song becomes Silver Threads Among the Gold. Now, all he has to do is is change that lead in line. Now, it, it seems to me very, very unlikely that he would choose to just stick with Herbert. Uh, you could perhaps make a case that um, he was doing a, a kind of a, a Yates to Polly thing and it just, you know, it just slipped his mind. And it, you know, you could maybe make that case, but I can't see any real case for him sticking with that deliberately. So I think he, he's basically he's got two he's got two options. He can either rewrite the joke in the same way and say here's one of my own compositions by hp danks and even e rexford but obviously that that sounds rubbish you know it's the same joke but the rhythm is not funny anymore or he can say something else and i just have a feeling that he decided to say something else and that he hit on saying victor herman instead of victor herbert uh in that in jokey way <laughs> that they were quite fond of i mean it seems to me very much like in monkey business uh the the margaret dumont-esque opera singer in the script is called madame swemsky in the film on the soundtrack, there's no question that she's called Madame Frenchie. So that's obviously something that they just decided to do on a whim, probably on the day that, that Frenchie was on the set doing that little uh, little walk on. So that, you know, that was the kind of thing they did. And I just have a feeling that he, he decided to change that line as an in-joke to Victor Herman. And I, I do hear an M sound in there. And I've said this to other people and they've had a listen and they've said, yeah, there is there is an M in there. So. I've changed my mind, and the second edition, it will go back to being Victor Herman for that reason. I'd have to listen yeah. to it again to see, because I've never heard Herman. I've obviously only heard Victor Herbert. It's a better joke because people know Victor Herbert, and they don't know whoever those guys were who wrote Silver Threads Among the Gold. i tell you what I do. I play you one of my own compositions by Victor Herbert. Make it short. Yeah, like you, Cinco, I, I've always heard it as Victor Herbert, and that seemed like a perfectly solid joke, and um, it never occurred to me that it was anything else um, until I heard Matthew's uh, theory. Uh, and now I just don't know what to believe. Wait till you hear what he says about the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> <laughs> it was Victor Herbert, right? <laughs> Bob, would you like to sing While You Gazelle? <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> My favorite performance in uh, Mark's film, it's not out of the box. It's not a surprise. It's Chico's Everyone Says I Love You, sing the Thelma Todd in uh, Horse Feathers. Yes. It's just mm-hmm. it's just so wonderful and charming the way they look at each other. They have real chemistry, and I have no doubt that there was something going on there <laughs> between the takes. You know, it's just a shame that Chico had this great a bit uh, singing with his accent and his mispronunciations and everything, and this is the only time they really did a full-fledged song. You know, I wish this would have been a regular thing in their, in their repertoire. Let's take a listen. Everyone says I love you. The great big mosquito when he sting you. The fly when he gets stuck on the fly paper too says I love you. Every time the cow says moo, she's a making the wolfie very happy too. And the rooster when he holler cocky doo 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 says I love you. Chris. 
the folk of Lombo, he write the Queen of Spain a very nice little note. And he's right all over you, maybe, and then he gave himself a great a big boat. He's a wiser guy, what do you think? Colombo do, when he's a come here in 1492, he said to Pocahontas, that means you little son of a gun, I love you. Every time I hear that, I think about the missed opportunities. Uh, there were other songs in the Marks uh, repertoire and their films that I think he would have been great singing. I would have loved to have heard him do Cosi Cosa. I would have loved to have heard him do Lydia. I think he would have had a nice take on it that maybe even Groucho didn't have. But uh, maybe on the other hand, it's just as well that we can get to hear him sing in uh, the big store. God knows what MGM would have had him do there. It's a wonderful bit. I mean, and I think other than a little tiny amount at the very end of Day at the Races, the only solo singing we ever get to hear from Chico in the films. And not only that, but the only time... Uh, that a lyricist working with the Marx Brothers rose to the challenge of writing lyrics for Chico's character and dialect. But it's wonderful what they did, and it makes me wish Chico had had more specialty vocals. It's it's great when, you know, they actually must have written it down, you know. Christopher Colombo, he write the Queen of Spain a very nice a little note. And he's a say, I love a you maybe. And he's so a wise guy. Yeah. A great big vote. He's yeah. a wise guy. He's yeah. a wise guy. <laughs> it's just great stuff. And it, it makes me think Chico had great unexplored potential as a musical, a singing comedian. He probably did a lot of stuff like that in his nightclub act, I would assume. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it is it is a lovely moment. I mean, the surprising thing, I think, is that it doesn't strike us as as so incredibly unusual. You know, everyone loves it. It's an absolutely delightful sequence but people don't tend to think oh and 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 chico actually has a song in this one you know it's really you know but it it is the one and only time as you say a a few little bits here and there he also gets um one uh sung feed line doesn't he in in riding the range he gets uh my father shot at the indians in 1862 or whatever it was um but not much i mean even uh in um fredonia's going to war uh groucho gets uh, a solo bit in that zeppo gets a line in that uh chico doesn't so it, it is very very strange given just how good at he at it he is uh how delightful he is and um it's interesting that in mm-hmm. the in the BBC um, flywheel shyster and flywheels that that Mark Brisenden adapted, uh, in order to to pad them out to half hour length, Chico got a number every week. Yes, and um, it just reinforces what a, a little asset they had there that they frustratingly used just that one time. Uh, the saxophone and piano trio in Monkey Business, which seems to pop up out of nowhere as they're in the middle of being pursued across the deck of the ship. Um, Suddenly Chico lands at the piano and the other three brothers with saxophones and skimmer or boater hats, uh, as in the (laughs) Chevalier sequence. Uh, It's a great moment of not just uh, seemingly impromptu musical performance from all four brothers, but the brothers as this unified force using music as an instrument of rebellion. Cinco, I seem to recall you mentioning once that you didn't think it was them actually playing. Yeah, I can't imagine it was. Were they all reasonably adept at the saxophone? I mean, it's very hard to just pick up a saxophone and make anything come out of it. So 
That would be my guess that it wasn't them. But I love that moment too. I, that's what I, I mean, I love the, the opening of monkey business as well in so many ways. Cause it's, you know, we get very few moments with all four brothers, you know, working together in that way. That's why I kind of, I, I have a fondness for the country's going to war too. Cause I, I liked seeing all four of them together, but, but I really love that moment. I, uh, it never occurred to me that it wasn't them playing, but you make a interesting and valid point. And certainly it sounds as though the applause, which follows that performance is, is dubbed in after the fact. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. There's no reason to think the music wasn't also, but it is a little sloppy. I mean, I know that, uh, it is, it's certainly true that even being able to fake it badly on the saxophone takes some skill. Um, and Harpo's the only Marx brother who I know could play reed instruments right you know? yeah uh he plays the clarinet and quite, coconuts yeah yes indeed and and uh, also on some of those later tv appearances i'm forever blowing bubbles mm-hmm. um, with bubbles coming out of the clarinet and things like that but uh but i don't know because that saxophone trio isn't it's it's highly imperfect you know they yes. don't necessarily sound in tune with each other. I would think and that it, they would try and find some instrument that they could at least get a sound out of for them to pick up and play. Yeah. I may be making a fool of myself here, but didn't Zeppo play the sax? I thought he did. He definitely shopped at sax. <laughs> <laughs> Off screen, he was the best saxophone player. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting point to me, though, that, that um, and, and maybe it's not interesting to anybody else, but, but whether, like, the musical numbers like Chico's and, and I say Chico and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stuck. Uh, on it. But, um, but whether, and Harpo's were actually filmed and recorded live or whether they recorded it earlier and then played to it. I uh, specifically in the, the Chico Harpo duet in the big store, if you're paying attention, Harpo is not playing that part, the bottom uh, part of that, at, at that duet at all. So. I've heard a great deal of conflicting information. I haven't made an intensive study of this, but Monkey Business, uh, despite its lack of songs, uh, does have a lot of musical moments in it. The saxophone trio, the Chevalier bit, uh, and also possibly Harpo's funniest harp solo. There's some great gags at the top of his solo in Monkey Business. Yeah, I'm going to say my actual favorite musical moments from both Chico and Harpo are in Monkey Business. I love the Harpo because, you know, he's making fun of the opera singer. It's a little hint of what was to come, I think, in Night at the Opera. Yeah, Monkey Business is sort of, it does feel like so much of Monkey Business became this font of inspiration for all the films later. You have the Day at the Races moment where becomes uh, a doctor and asks where the horse is. And yeah, some real Night at the Opera type stuff too in the party scene. And also Madame Frenchie is an opera celebrity, isn't she? Yeah, and and I was actually going to say my favorite Chico. Sorry, is it probably is it offensive to you every time I say Chico? No, it's fine. Uh, we talked about it in the first episode. Um, yeah, I remember you discussing it. I can't remember where everybody landed, but anyway, I lo- I love the solo in Monkey Business, and it sort of it just fits the classic Chico format, which is he starts with a classical sounding piece, and then uh-huh. at some point he gets this like wicked grin on his face as he switches. To a more popular <laughs> song, you know. In this case, it's pizzicato. It's that that which to me is yes. just is perfectly designed for his shooting the keys technique. And uh, absolutely. And I am actually uh, Chico's piano playing was a huge part of my attraction to the Marx Brothers early on because I 
played piano and I, you know, immediately tried to learn this solo, the monkey business one and shredded my middle finger. I don't know if anyone else has tried to, to, to do that, <laughs> that glissando technique, uh, but he must have had like crazy tough fingers. I mean, you look at them and they're, they're not necessarily the fingers of a pianist, you know, they're more the fingers of a working man. They're a little yeah. sort of thicker and tougher. It's, and, uh, but uh, anyway, I love this, you know, and then he switches to when my sugar, when I take my sugar to tea, which I always assumed was ain't she sweet because it's sort of the same chord structure. But um, I know that's always been a favorite of mine, that solo. So when you were practicing Cinco and trying to master the Chico technique, the key question is, did you soak your hands in water? first? <laughs> Yeah, I did not. Maybe that's the key. Yeah, and I have a hard time, as someone who plays piano, buying that that, that was what he did to practice. <laughs> Just soak his hands in hot water for 20 minutes or something. That's enough practice. Yeah. That's the legend. I wonder if he just, over the course of his entire adult life, played the piano so often and so vigorously that he was never out of practice. Yeah. Do we know where he learned that shooting technique? Was that totally from him? Did he observe someone else doing it and imitate it? Do we know? That's a really good question. I, I would imagine he did not learn it from the piano teacher Minnie hired. No, <laughs> no. That's where he learned all the classical pieces that he played at yeah. the beginning of the solos. Yeah. It seems like something that would have been like, what could I do that on stage that the audience would, would appreciate? Yeah, right, right. A, a p piano fingering technique that you could see from the balcony. I just remember as a 10-year-old kid, you know, when I saw my first Marx Brothers movie, just being totally delighted and obsessed with with his piano technique and, and trying to figure it out. Yeah, I would order the music. I would, you know, tape it from the TV and and listen to it to try to, like, you know, figure it out in my own version. Now, all Chico's stuff appears to be live. It's hard to fake a piano solo with the camera so close in on the keys. Yeah, I mean, there are some cuts in there, right? right? The, well, the, yeah, I'm sure they did some inserts. There are some things. inserts, yeah, but yeah. but yeah, I've looked at them pretty closely, and and they see it's only the the duet in the big store that seems flagrantly like. Harpo is making almost no attempt. <laughs> He's just sort of like slapping his hands on the piano. And I think he could play piano. I think they've they've done it live together. But I think yeah. I think maybe he was just like what's the point of putting an effort where just there's it's pre-recorded. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um the, the certainly in the very early Paramount films, I think it seems to be live. Um it, by definitely by the time you get to MGM, I suspect that they are they are miming to a track and i've certainly we've certainly come across um slightly ambiguous references to uh, to other people who are, uh, who are actually um playing on on the record and it, that seems like like sacrilege like you know a heresy but if you look at it from harpo's point of view um you know he, he making these movies isn't really uh, you know, a particularly important thing to him, and I, and I think he he might have thought, well, you know, if, if I'm on there, you can see me, and I'm and, and I'm the star. Um, why really does it matter if it's actually me playing it on the on the tape? You know, if I have to come all the way into the studio uh, and record this, 
you know, who, you know, who, who is that benefiting really? Um, I think if you look at it in that sort of a way, it's not, it's not so shocking and it's not so outrageous. Um, you know, he's only making a movie. It's when he's, when he's live on stage is when he wants to really impress people. Um, if he's just shooting a scene in a film, yeah, why not just, uh, mime to, to something that somebody else has recorded? Well, you know, it is true with regard to all these questions of overdubs that in general, uh, live music is imperfect. And whether it's in a theater or in a nightclub or a concert, you can always tolerate um, imperfections and even flubs and mistakes in live music that just sticks out like a sore thumb in recorded music or on film. And I think it's entirely possible that in their stage career, Harpo and Chico, um, you know, hit some clinkers, as uh, Les Marsden put it in uh, our interview with him. Um, but on film, yeah, as Matthew says, being a little more fastidious about no false moments or uh, instances of inconsistent timing, uh, it does make sense. And if you could bring in somebody who was just uh, um, a more polished sort of machine, um I, I could have easily imagine Harpo wanting that. It's so fun to find this stuff out and, and it's really interesting, but then there's part of it that like is a little like breaks my heart that, to think that like all this time I thought that was Harpo playing and that that might be somebody else. But is, is there, what is, sort of evidence is there? It's like finding out that somebody else did Groucho's autograph. Or like that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, pr- I want to cling to the fantasy. That is Groucho's signature on that, that, uh, yeah. Eight by ten, I've got hanging on my wall, you know, and Harpo did play it. We found a few little hints and suggestions in the papers that it was that, that other people claimed, you know, took t- took credit for doing it. Um, I've also heard that some of the close-ups of the hands are not his hands. Um, I can't remember who told me that. I think it might have been George Bettinger, but um, hmm. it doesn't particularly shock yeah. or surprise me really. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't detract from anything uh, uh, that's good about them. Speaking of which, maybe we should get in. Maybe we, we've gotten into this before, and we'll get into it again about Zeppo's uh, singing performance in Horse Feathers. There seems to be a lot of uh, debate about whether it's actually him uh, yeah. singing. For a long time, everybody assumed it was, and there has been some dispute that's come up recently. Is it because it sounds too good to be Zeppo? I guess that's really what it comes down to. I was always pretty convinced. I mean, in Horse Feathers, uh, when he sings, everyone says, I love you. Uh, it always seemed to me like very natural and seemed and sounded a lot like him. But on the other hand, it is true that in other occasions outside of Horse Feathers, he often seems very oddly resistant to singing, including in Animal Crackers, his part in Captain Spaulding, which is fairly substantial, uh, which he just chants. I represent the captain who insists on my involving you of these conditions under which he can't stand. In one thing, he is very strict. He wants his women young and fit, and as for men, he won't have any tramps here. Um, and, you know, there are notes to that stuff. And when you see Animal Crackers on stage in Revival, generally people playing Jamison sing those notes. Uh, and then uh, his How I Should Cry for Firefly line in Duck Soup is also kind of you know, spoken or chanted rather than sung. Oh, how we cry for Firefly, Firefly should die. So that, that suggests uh, perhaps he uh, was a, a non-singer. What makes this all the more strange is that at this exact moment, somebody is trying to forge a, a singing career for Zeppo. There is talk of him going on the radio and uh, perhaps making a record. And yeah. there's articles that he's 
going to be featured singing and maybe even writing a song for the upcoming Marx film. So someone somewhere is trying to pass him off as a legitimate singer. Maybe those were planted to sell us on the fact that that was his <laughs> voice in the horse feathers. <laughs> Did any of that come to fruition? Is there a Zeppo, Zeppo Sings album? There really isn't. There's, I, it's hard to find any recording um, from back then of Zeppo. There's no radio performance with him. There's really nothing of him off screen. His uh, Chevalier impression is very convincing um, as far as it being his real voice, not sounding like Chevalier, but uh, in both the House That Shadows Built um, theatrical agency sketch and in Monkey Business. If I had to guess, I would say it's really Zeppo singing in every instance, but I don't know. You know, what might throw people is that it is dubbed in. You know, it obviously, he wasn't singing live there, even if it is his voice. It was a, a dubbed in recording. Yeah, the thing with him on the, on the radio show that, that we found, I mean, whether whatever the truth of that is it was saying that 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 show actually happened wasn't it if i remember rightly uh it was saying that he actually did do that that show where he was where he was singing so it's possible i mean unless um john tefteller has got uh, another big surprise waiting for us and i I know he's got at least one uh very big surprise waiting for us but um uh, unless he's got that under his belt as well obviously that show is lost but but the implication was that that it did happen i mean my my reason which is a very naive reason for thinking that uh he is singing uh, everyone says I love you is that it, it sounds like him to me and that and that is you know that is a really silly layman's reason for thinking it but I just I just think I can hear his voice there I think I can hear his speaking voice singing mm-hmm. um, it obviously it is dubbed yes uh, and obviously he is if it is him he is putting a lot of effort in because he's, he's he's being a crooner in a way that he wasn't before and it's possible that he's thinking you know this film career is isn't working for me maybe I'll, I'll give this a try he certainly tried plenty of other things he wrote screenplays and things maybe maybe he was giving that a try my only reason for doubting it now is that his most sort of steadfast defender, who's a, um, our friend Andrea Orlando, who, who we must get on here at some point to, to talk about this, uh, who was who was really manning the barricades against any suggestion that it wasn't him, has lately decided that maybe yeah. it, maybe it isn't, and she has sort of uh, reasons for thinking that that are that are way beyond my comprehension about his his tonal range or, or something, and and she is now starting to doubt it. So I really I really must. Uh, sit on the fence here but it, you know to me it just sounds like his voice i feel that way too it's it's just convinces me that it is him yeah i think that you know the part that sticks out to me is that when dad gets mad oh yes and that that sticks out a little bit of sore thumb but i think it could be zeppo like imitating a, a pop singer of the day or something like that you know it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily sound like him but i could see him you know well this is how i should try to make it sound because it that sticks out a little bit to me. Knowing Dad as I do, I'd not advise you to displease him or tease him. No, no. Don't double-cross him or toss him around. When dear old Dad once gets mad, he's a hound. Um... Well, would you mind if I talked a little bit about some Groucho signature numbers that weren't in the films, um, but that became so heavily associated with him later in his career uh, on the Evening with Groucho record and and elsewhere? And so many of those are so distinctively his, uh, but they're not really canonical in the sense of being from the films. Mm-hmm. Um, Kalmar and Ruby um, extras like Show Me a Rose and mm-hmm. Father's Day – 
And there's a place called Omaha, Nebraska, which I think is Groucho's only songwriting credit. He wrote that with Harry Ruby. And all three of these songs are, are so interesting to me. They're, they're sort of more droll than laugh out loud funny. And they're just kind of one degree removed from the kind of sentimental, straightforward mm-hmm. ballads that they seem to be parodying. And, you know, especially Show Me a Rose and, and Omaha, Nebraska, you know, you could change a lyric, just a word here and there, and turn them into very straightforward, sort of unremarkable uh, period sentimental ballads. Uh, but partly because of Groucho's delivery and partly because the lyrics are just skewed ever so slightly toward absurdity, they become these... Um, sort of droll relics of the mangy lover period. And we can't forget the go West young man. Yeah. Go West young man. I guess you could put Dr. Hackenbush in this column too. stay down where Uh, you belong. I love that one. That's uh, Berlin, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an early one. That's the other dimension, I guess, of non-filmic Groucho numbers. The, the really early stuff that he kept going in later in his career, like, Stuff like Timbuktu, which is by Kalmar and Ruby, and Oh, How That Woman Could Cook, and Everybody Works But Father. Right. He turned those things into maybe funnier pieces than they really were. And what's that tune from Skidoo that was cut? Uh, I don't know. I think it was by Victor Herman. <laughs> Did he have a cut number no, from no, Skidoo? No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but you know, no, it is interesting. Those The three earlier songs that you mentioned are all parodies, right? They're all parodies of a certain type of song and and i'd say like omaha nebraska is flat out nonsense there's uh, there's not very subtle <laughs> <laughs> lyrical uh changes there that's just but it is interesting it, it makes me think about you know when par- parodies of pop music began you know and and where that came from and if if groucho was sort of at the beginning of of that sort of thing yeah, it does. It does strike me as another vaudevillian convention, you know, right. um, just changing the lyrics to well-known songs. It's, it's all kind of been an age old source of amusement. Um, and I'm sure it I'm sure it happened all the time in vaudeville. Uh, it's true. Omaha, Nebraska. I, it's it vaguely seems like it's riffing on um, songs like Swanee, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Tributes to, to places. Uh, sentimental places, and yeah, it mixes up all the geography uh, a, a lot, of course. But uh, but it's not the all-out assault on a song form that one might expect if you're imagining a Groucho Marx par- popular song parody. And Father's Day manages to be uh, sort of genuinely moving, uh, even though it is tongue-in-cheek and has its kind of snide, uh, you know, uh, according to our mother, you're our father, and that's, that's good, good enough, enough for us. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, you know, um, I've performed it on Father's Day and people are moved by it. It is genuinely sweet. It is, especially, yeah, that's that's good enough for us. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a joke, but then it also is like, yeah, that's that's how we feel about our dads. That's good. You know? Yeah. <laughs> we love you no matter what, Dad. Even if you aren't really our dad, we love you. So do we know the exact deal with Duck Soup and why there's no piano solo or harp solo in the film? You know, if you look back at the time, those uh, parts were always, always considered the highlights of their performances live and in film. Everybody always raved about the solos. It's not like they were, people were getting tired of them. So it's just, what do you think? The, the fact that they were not in the film uh, harmed the film? 
I, I do think it sort of harms the film because because I, I enjoy them so, so much. I mean, I, I agree completely with uh, with Cinco. The first time I saw the Marx Brothers, one of the things I enjoyed most was 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 seeing Chico play the piano. I thought that was absolutely wonderful and and funny. You know, I thought it was a as much a part of the part of the fun as much a part of the comedy uh, as anything else in the movie. So so I do really miss it. Um, what I don't know is is why that decision was taken exactly or, or if it was something that I can blame McCary for. I mean, obviously that is my, my default, you know, if in doubt blame McCary. Um, I presume it was, it was uh, a decision from, from emanating from, from around him that we were going to cut all yeah. this stuff out this time. Um, obviously it, it must've been a late decision. I don't think they've been, I don't think those sequences of sequences have actually been cut from the film itself, but they've clearly been cut from the screenplay because there are obvious moments in the movie where they would have happened. There's no sharp cut there where it's been taken out, but you can see where it was about to happen. So it was obviously a fairly late decision. Yeah, I, I do miss it. I do regret it. it. It is something that I, that I, that I hold against Duck Soup for, for, for that reason. I think it was a, a decision that was wrong. I definitely feel the same way. I love Duck Soup, but I think it just, it, you miss it. You feel it. it. It's it makes me a little sad that it's not there. And Matthew, I'm wondering, is it in the break-in in the house? Is that what you're thinking? That because there is the little you know strumming of the of the keyboard strings of the piano strings. There is that where you're thinking they would go or. Yes, that was always my presumption. Was that that when uh, when they're there with those with those instruments, um, that, that's when when it would have happened, and and that would have been nice, you know, because obviously they're supposed to be quiet and they're not, and they're obviously not being quiet. So it is it is the absolutely right wrong place for them to go. I would put the blame on McCary, right? He's the he's the X factor there. Yeah, I would think so, and and I certainly agree that uh, I'd rather I'd rather have those solos in, and not just for their own delightful qualities, which are abundant, but because I think it's a crucial part of the Marx Brothers act that every now and then you're going to get an out of context standalone performance, you know, very much the way variety performance of the stage would, would just interpolate their specialties. I was listening the other day to our comrades over at the Full Marx podcast. Who I'm, I'm, ah, yes. I'm giving them a plug because if you can't wait a month to listen to us, there's another Marx podcast that I really like. It's called The Full Marx Podcast, and they're going through all the films. And they were going through Duck Soup just the other day, and this topic came up, and one of the gentlemen said that it was at Groucho's insistence that the solos were dropped. I'm not really sure what the source is, but that doesn't sound totally out of line. I was going to ask about that because, you know, it's it's fairly well known that he was not fond of them. and. And that is one of his greatest lines when in Horse Feathers. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, to the point of like removing his own brother's musical moments from the movie, that seems a little harsh. Yeah, it is some of the, the rare documented occasions of Marx Brothers being ungenerous with each other uh, do happen when Groucho in later interviews discusses the, the solos of his brothers. Yeah, I mean, I'm never sure, to be honest, how how true these these stories are. But I, you know, I'm perfectly prepared to believe that the Groucho wasn't so keen on on those moments. Uh, I don't think that necessarily means that he would have had uh, clout with the studio 
uh, above and beyond what Harper and Chico would have done in order to actually to get them removed. I can't really see Groucho going to to either the director or, or you know somebody at Paramount and saying I you know I want my my brother's uh, solos out of the next movie. They would say no. People like them, you know. Don't be so silly. I just can't imagine Groucho individually having that kind of power where it counts. It's the other thing that, of course, that's, that's missing from Duck Soup is is the um, the, the whole Big Bad Wolf um, sequence, which um, apparently was shot uh, after principal photography had begun, uh, had completed. Rather, uh, they were called back to to shoot an entirely uh, separate sequence. The details of which are, are extremely vague, but which involved um, the, 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 the Who's Afraid of the, of the Big Bad Wolf song, which was like a huge big deal at that time, very briefly, from, the, uh, from its appearance in the Disney cartoon. Apparently they shelled out big bucks for it and, uh, and shot this sequence in which Groucho was in some way representing the wolf. Uh, God knows what it, how it would have fitted in or where it would have fitted in. But in any event, they did apparently shoot it and then abandon it. Um, and all that they, all that they, they did with the, with, with the song, which they, which they paid out for is just have that tiny little, little extract from it. Um, that, that's on the thing that, um, that Harpo picks up. Uh, and that's all, and all that's left of it. But even, uh, after it's released, the, uh, the reviews, which are presumably based largely on, on press releases still make this big deal about it, how it's got this song, you know, that the new American national anthem or something, you know, the, uh, that it's, it plays a big part in this film, which it obviously doesn't. It's a, it's a very strange and perplexing mystery. As we know, there are some stills, a, a selection of stills that aren't from any, any scene that's surviving in the film where Groucho is in the, that reception set from his first appearance. And there are, there are loads of women about in kind of fluffy, fluffy white dresses with what looks like crooks so they they look like shepherdesses um it's just possible that that is a is um is a remnant of this scene but it's it is it is a strange mystery of duck soup that it what appears to be a large production number uh was was shot was shot after principal photography uh and then was junked and the only reason i can presume it was junked is because it, it must have been rubbish i can't think <laughs> of any other reason why they would have bothered to do that and then not not kept it in as someone who's worked in the movie biz it, it does sound like classic like studio executive <laughs> idea of like hey this song is a huge hit this will really help our movie to to you know to somehow uh, shoehorn this into the Marx Brothers film. And it seems like that classic idea, somebody up high must have thought that would be great. And so they did it. And then they realized, like Matthew said, <laughs> it didn't fit. It didn't work. I would love to see it, though. Thinking about uh, the moment in Duck Soup when Harpo plucks the piano strings and the only uh, even whisper of a, an instrumental solo in that film, um, what do you guys make of the Day at the Races harp solo in which he extracts the strings from a grand piano and plays that string board as though it were a harp? How legitimate do you think that is? you think he really is playing piano strings that have been extracted? And how viable is that? That's interesting. I wish I knew how a harp was strung because is it strung chromatically in that way? I I don't think a harp is strung chromatically like a piano. So so my guess would be no way. Although I love his destruction of the piano, yeah, with with the song oh, yes, and then I'm... and then the revelation. It's really clever, but I can't imagine he's actually <laughs> playing 
the the strings from the piano. But I would be happy yeah, to be corrected should, by someone who knows better than I. We should have Les Marsden or Seth Sheldon on to talk harp mechanics. I, I have been uh, talked through some of the details of, of how a harp works by both of those gentlemen, but um, I can't uh, intelligently uh, convey it to you. Um, but yeah, it always seemed a little too good to be true. You know, this act of wanton destruction <laughs> of the piano resulting in uh, this typically heavenly harp solo. Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphor for sort of, or the two sides of Harpo Marx, you know, that impish yeah. destruction, like, just like when he's burning books and, and destroying the piano. And, and, but then there's like the soul of a poet inside him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the real value of the harp solos, isn't it? And um, and Matthew points out in our chat, the, the loom that he plays in Go West is a, a similar kind of um, alternate uh, harp for Harpo to play. But, you know, it's interesting. We we seem to all have immediately identified when we were children, the Chico piano solos as just delightfully entertaining. And one of the things that drew us into loving the films uh, were the Harpo harp solos more of an acquired taste for you guys. For me, I, I really loved the first uh, the first movie I saw when I was 10 was The Big Store. And, I you know, obviously later on, I realized I was kind of a low condolences a low point <laughs> a low point for them and in particular I know Noah's not going to enjoy it. I remember laughing hysterically at that roller skating chase at the end I was uh, yeah. I was 10 I didn't I didn't know any better but <laughs> I loved everything you didn't know it wasn't funny no yeah yeah but I love yeah I Noah hadn't explained to me how unfunny it was yet just like Matthew hadn't ruined duck soup for me yet you know but um but yeah, but I remember seeing right. He's in the room with all the mirrors, and and he's got the like the the, the old fashioned garb on. And I, yeah. I, I I remember just being really fascinated by like what is this? Like it, it, it is fascinating. It, it was it was just really interesting to me. And I, I have to confess, like later on, you know, I, I was not as a kid of eleven and twelve. You know, I'm not super captivated by all the harp solos. To, to be honest, but that did stick with me that that memory of like what who is this guy who was who was so crazy and now he's making beautiful music, especially someone who you know I've been playing classical music since I was little. It was really interesting to me. The one that stuck with me when I was a kid was um from at the circus uh, the blue moon, and there's this lady looking through the harp. Why did I look right through the harp watching him play? And this, oh, that, yeah. that, the look of that lady just always, always like freaked me out. <laughs> He's often serenading someone, right? Thelma Todd, the horse, the yes. you know, the poster. <laughs> group of children. Uh, and it also, I mean, we, we say it all the time, but it really is so true. And since we're all such uh, tut-tut critics, um, we, we should reiterate as often as possible that the worst Marx Brothers movie ever, whichever one you think it is, is still pretty delightful. And uh, and uh, Cinco, I don't hold it against you that you you, <laughs> you thought that roller skating stuff was funny when you were ten. You know what's interesting to me, and this and and please, Bob, feel free to cut this out if it's stupid. But you know, Harpo rolled his sleeves up to play the harp, and it revealed his hairy arms, and somehow that seemed bizarre to me because he seemed like such a child. And it's like, wait, he has hairy arms. It was it was always incongruous to me to yeah 
You know, it's always in, also interesting uh, in a few films, right when he's starting his harp solo, he like looks up in the sky at the heavens right before he starts. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've gone back and forth on that. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's corny. And other times like, oh, look at him. Yeah. Maybe he's playing to Minnie or something like that. Maybe that's a little moment for mom. Harpo and Chico often, I mean, they're presented as classical musicians a lot of the time, and, and sometimes they are, but they they seem to have a distinctly working class approach to performing their solos and and rolling up the sleeves is maybe part of that. Uh, also in Monkey Business, the way at the beginning of his solo, Chico says to the band, ready, boys, let's go. <laughs> uh, and and at the end of his solo, Harpo sort of poses like a prize fighter, like he just the knocks prize. someone out. <laughs> <Yes. in> a, <laughs> They they do this in what in some ways are very refined displays of talent, but they are constantly undercutting the um, um, the highfalutinness of it. Yeah, I think there is an unresolved tension actually in in the movies between uh, their need to be presented as as uh, you know forces of nature, and in other words, as essentially uh, you know uh, um, working class or, or or indeed you know no class uh, characters, and the fact that, that that their musical dexterity is something that is associated with high culture. And I think sometimes the films try too hard, really, to um, to to kind of have it both ways. I mean, they, right, right from the, in, in monkey business, you know, there's uh, whatever her name is doing a solo in this room, so you're all in that room, you know, and and the whole the whole plot, obviously, of a night at the opera, um, is based on that on that sort of undefined schism. I mean, you read obviously constantly that, that one of the reasons why a night at the opera is so great is because it's anti-opera, and of course it isn't because they love. Um, whatever he's called, Ricardo, you know, they, they think he's just great. The only reason they don't like uh, Lasparri is, be, is because mm-hmm. he's horrible, not not because he's an opera singer. And again, and also uh, Jardinet, uh being being sent off across across the sea in uh, that glorious end shot of uh, About the Circus, which I think, um, ironically, for such a for such a lackluster film, is probably the best ending of any of their movies. I love watching that bandstand disappear into the distance. Um, I think they're constantly trying and sometimes trying too hard to 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 make that make that um distinction between what they do and what they're ostensibly doing which is which is playing beautiful music beautifully of course we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the wonderful serenading of thelma tide by groucho in the canoe playing a guitar well the uh, groucho's playing the guitar not the canoe but, uh, you know what I mean? In Horse Feathers, it's just wonderful that, uh, and once again, like we talked about with Chico, this was something they didn't really explore, that didn't be, that there was a one-time thing, and it's a shame because it really is uh, nice to look at. And uh, with the right material, this could have been a nice regular bit in the Marx films, or at least a, more than a one-time thing. Lion gets 
Frisky and begins to roar. There's another lion who knows just what he's roaring for. Everything that ever grew, the goose and the gander and the gosling too. The duck upon the water when he feels that way too says, that's a wise quack. Yeah, we get a tiny bit of uh, guitar in Thelma Todd's stateroom in Monkey Business, and I guess Riding the Range is the only other example. Um, it is true. Groucho had this, um, you know, considerable ability to play the guitar, uh, and it wasn't that he swore off doing it in character or, or on film altogether, but uh, he did refuse to make it a, a real part of his character the way Harpo and Chico did with their instruments. I guess because he was getting the big tunes early in the film, he didn't feel the need for things later on. Yeah. And it is a little weird. You know, him with a guitar is just a little strange. Although both of those moments that you mentioned are two of my favorite things in, in, in the movies, the, the stateroom scene with Thelma Todd and, and out on the rowboat. It almost seems anachronistic to see Groucho playing the, yeah, the guitar. Yeah. Uh, although it wasn't an, as anachronistic, you know, it wasn't really. But uh, yeah, it seems to anticipate the... Um, the folk era almost. Groucho is Dylan. Too bad Groucho didn't play at Woodstock. That would have been <laughs> cool. Have the guitar up here. I, I was going to bring up, you know, the, the sequence in uh, Day at the Races, which I call like 10 minutes of cheering up Judy, which is <laughs> <laughs> like they, they dedicate a lot of musical space to like making her happy because she's so dang sad. And which is like, you know, the the song, now I forget the name of it, that Alan Jones sings, Tomorrow's Another Day, is that what it is? Yeah. And then Gabriel Blow Your Horn and All God's Children Got Rhythm, uh, which, you know, it, it, you're, you're torn watching it now because obviously there are a lot of uh, racial stereotypes in that which are uncomfortable and, and, and unfortunate. But there is something really joyful about Harpa with those kids, you know, and, and uh, particularly that the, the Gabriel segment, which makes me, you know, wish there were more of Harpa with kids. You know, uh, I, I love the sequence in, in Monkey Business at the puppet show uh, where he's with the kids. But um, I, I, I sort of love the whole flow of this. And I love giving those African-American performers an opportunity to show their stuff. Ivy Robertson gets to sing. I think the Dandridge sisters are in there somewhere yeah. in the background. And um, and maybe All God's Children Got Rhythm maybe the most successful song from a Marx Brothers movie? It's pretty good. And I, I think it, it's been pointed out that it sort of reverses the um, satirical use of that phrase in Duck Soup mm -hmm. with All God's Chillin' Got Guns. Right. Uh, so it does seem to be a key moment in the um, devolution of the Marx Brothers uh, films as as vehicles of satire. My choice for my for my song is um, it's actually my my favourite song from any Marx Brothers movie. I think I think uh, perversely it's it's not a Marx Brothers song. It, it's uh, Why Am I So Romantic from uh, Animal Crackers, sung by Lillian Roth and the chap with the Art Garfunkel hair. What's his name? Can't think for a minute. Oh, Hal Thompson. I think he's good. Um, and I I I genuinely think it's one of the best 
1930s pop songs ever written. I think it's a beautiful little tune. I think the lyrics are great. I mean, when you hear it in the uh, the opening credits of the movie, when you just hear the instrumental version, already it's a, it's a classic. It's the most jaunty, delightful little number. And then when it comes in halfway through the movie with with these very delightful lyrics, mm-hmm. beautifully performed by by Lillian Roth, who's you know a, a dream obviously to to watch with her facial expressions and things. Um, it, it just it just gives me a real shot in the arm of happiness. All the boys I've known used to say I was made of stone. I would always leave them alone in despair. I've been on the pan. I've been called an electric fan. Told I'm even much colder than frigid air. I began to wonder if I was alone. I thought so till you came. Tell me, dear, why am I so romantic? When you're near, why am I so romantic? What a grand feeling. When your lips meet mine, that certain something comes stealing up and down my spine. I don't know what it is you do to me. You don't know half of the good you do to me. All the boys for me, they just leave me correct me if I'm wrong, that's unique about it, is I think it's the only Marx Brothers movie where the uh, the the song that the young lovers sing to each other is by the same writers as the comedy songs. Uh, I I think that's correct. Um, and that's part of the reason why it's it's so great. It's written like a like a Marx Brothers song, written like a comedy song. Um, but it is this most delightful little mm-hmm. semi-ironic uh, love duet between two delightful young lovers. And it just is the happiest, loveliest song I know. 
Right on. I, I think it's a great number. And, and it's, uh, you know, as, as you undoubtedly know, it, it wasn't in the original stage Animal Crackers, but was introduced specifically for the film. Uh, but since then, whenever Animal Crackers is re- revived on stage, uh, Why Am I So Romantic is always interpolated because uh, it's a crucial uh, ingredient in the recipe. You'll get no argument from me. That's I I love the song. It's totally delightful. And Lillian, the personality she injects into her performance of the song is is really great and seems different from sort of the vibe I get from other movies made in 1930. You know, there's something kind of modern about her delivery and her performance. Yes, there really is. And I think that's part of why she is generally the favorite ingenue. It's, she seems more like she could inhabit the same world as the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. say Ruth Hall, you know. Uh, she's very New York. I think that's part of it. She has a a very thick New York accent and a kind of, she is kind of a wise guy in her own right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her character is written a little more um, sassy and acerbic by by Kaufman and Riskind um, than than the typical ingenues are in their films. Was this Was this song covered much re-recorded by other people or was it kind of did it appear here and was forgotten apart from by Marx fans I'm looking online right at this moment and there were a number of covers but from that era nothing from beyond the 1930s that I'm seeing hmm. the reference to frigid air and yes. the lyric always strikes me as an especially um uh typical and delightful period touch um putting brand names of then very modern technological marvels into songs. It seems very, a very Cole Porter move to, um, to reference frigid air in a love song. Yes. Uh, a, a musical thing we didn't really touch on um, is the way old nostalgic numbers pop up in these incidental contexts in the Marx Brothers films, like Sweet Adeline in Monkey Business and My Old Kentucky Home in Animal Crackers and Down by the Old Mill Stream and Day at the Races. They had this whole other kind of hidden repertoire of ancient songs that they'd heard millions of times in vaudeville that they could just lapse into at any moment um, in three, or if you want to fight about it, four part <laughs> harmony. <laughs> um, that was a real part of, that was significant in their bag of tricks, just lapsing into real antique numbers. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I sort of, this is probably isn't real, but I can in some ways picture like Chico at the piano and all the Mark's family, you know, all the boys gathered around and oh. Minnie and, and Sam, like, that was the way that was the form of entertainment in those days, you know, the the piano that everybody had in the house. That was the radio, that was the TV of of its era. So I I wonder if there was a lot of that in the Marx household growing up when Chico was home. Yeah, that's a lovely uh th- thing to imagine, uh Marx family scene at home with everyone gathered around the piano, uh, raucously singing and shouting and out suggestions for Chico and yeah. Hey, yeah. play this. Yeah. We haven't really talked about the music of Coconuts, which I've always thought is underrated. Yeah, it's not the classic score that Irving Brown was hoping for, but there's some nice tunes, and I love, you know, I love Monkey Doodle Do. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Yeah, Monkey Doodle Do. I I can't I can't tell you how much I love it, and although I guess some of the Groucho numbers, I guess, are closer to my heart. Uh, Monkey Doodle Do pleases me. Um, the way Matthew's talking about why am I so romantic. Um, it's just great. And even without the delightful and absurd lyric, 
um, the melody of Monkey Doodle Doo. You know, it's it's that really is like we're really into the jazz age um, with that kind of syncopation and uh, unexpected rhythmic twists and a lyric that just fits the um, vocal line like a like a well tailored suit. It's also genuinely funny, that song, in, in a way that um, makes it feel, even though it's not performed by the Marx Brothers, close to their um, their essential attitude. And I, in a, my lecture about the Marx Brothers Broadway career, um, I do a piece where I recite the lyrics of Monkey Doodle Doo and show them on a screen <laughs> to really get people to consider them, um, including the reference to uh, monkey glands, which... If you uh, if you Google that, you'll you'll learn things you never wanted to know. Yes. Monkeys upon a tree, never are very blue. They never seem to be alone. That is true. Not like the words you see on a bar in a zoo. Monkeys upon a tree, you the monkey doodle do. Among the mangoes, where the monkey can go, you can see them do. The little monkey doodle doo. Oh, a little monkey playing on his monkey gives them all the cue to do the monkey doodle doo. Let me take you by the hand over to the jungle bed. If you're too old for dancing, get yourself a monkey gland and then let's go. A little theory is the Darwin theory. Tell me I'm you. To do the monkey do. So do you get a lot of converts to monk- monkey doodle do from your lectures? <laughs> I don't know if, if the, the Marx Brothers fans need a lot of converting. Right. It, that song seems, except among those who just resent the musical numbers no matter what, uh, it seems to be fairly popular. Well, I was going to say the opposite, actually. I, from, from, from what I've seen, I, I thought that it was generally um, a much disliked song by Marx Brothers fans. Uh, and like you, I, 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 cannot, I cannot for the oh. life of me think why. It, it, I often hear people saying, you know, one of the problems, they have two big problems with coconuts. One is that the camera doesn't move much. Big deal, and the other is these terrible, terrible songs. And I, th- I think they're wonderful. I enjoy them all. But yeah, uh, Monkey Doodle Do is is a is a, a wonderful song. Very funny. Monkey glands and and uh, the Darwin theory. This lovely idea of Darwin theory. What a lovely way of putting that. Um, it's it's a uh, yeah. It's an absolutely um, wonderful song. I mean, as you say, some people just just don't want songs in those movies that aren't that aren't um, sung by the Marx Brothers. You know, there are, as we know, there are people who don't like alone there are people who listen to alone and think oh get on with it um but but even if even if you don't want soppy stuff that's such a such a bubbly delightful song i i think it's an easy target because of its title so you know it's just it's fun to say the title and and i think it's easy to mock just because what a stupid song monkey doodle do yeah Mm -hmm. but i but i think i think if people had a chance to attend noah's lecture and saw the lyrics up there, <laughs> they would really appreciate that there's a lot more to it than just a silly title. Hey, I'm available. Anyone wants to hear my lecture, I can be at your apartment in 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, well, one of the most distinctive pieces of music we associate with the Marx Brothers is the piece that is sometimes called the Chico Motif, and which is often misidentified as Sugar Time or Sugar in the Morning. <laughs> Thank you. 
set us straight on that, Cinco Paul. Well, I, I was going to say that that when I uh, first heard the song, and you know, I, I decided I was going to try to learn all of Chico's solos and figure out how to play like him. You know, I ordered the sheet music to a lot of these beer barrel polka and all I do is dream of you and and uh, pizzicato. And I ordered the sheet music to Sugar Time because yeah. I assumed that was the song. And so for for most of my Marx Brothers life, I, I uh, knew it as that. But later I discovered it was the song that uh, Chico had written that has many titles, but I think was originally I'm Daffy Over You. Which was years before Sugar Time, so I don't know if there was ever a lawsuit or there could have been, but yeah, I, I'm Daffy over you. I think was the original, but then virtually the same piece of music was later published again by Chico with another lyric. It's called "Lucky Little Lucky Penny. Little Penny," right? Lucky little penny found a little penny. It was lucky from the start. <laughs> Replacing, uh, I think it's like the wind that's blowing. Don't know where I'm going. Waiting everywhere for you. Um, it seems distinctively Chico Marxish of him, doesn't it, to um, copyright and publish the same song twice with two different uh, lyrics. And perhaps it just served him right that for the rest of eternity, everyone thinks it's a whole other song <laughs> <Yes>. anyway. <laughs> um, but it pops up. Of course, it's showcased in Animal Crackers, but it's significant in the scoring of uh, horse feathers and monkey business, right? It's kind of the theme of monkey business, isn't it? Monkey it's business. played throughout in its Harpo solo. That's all. And I think Chico actually requests it, right? Play something nice. I tell you what you play. Play. That's it. Ah, it's so beautiful. That's so magnifico. Oh, I like that. Maybe that was a way for him to earn some extra bucks, right? To get it on the 
I don't know how residuals worked in those days. Oh, yeah, because he had the publishing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Chico, it wasn't just the Marx Brothers movie. Anytime Chico went to an Andre Segovia concert and he said, hey, play, da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's certainly a distinctive piece of music, and it's impossible to hear it or anything like it without thinking of Chico. And it has a sort of bouncy, merry quality that fits the, the Paramount films especially. And it can go on forever. Yes, if you can't think of the thing. Yes. Yeah, what I'd love to know is if, if Chico heard uh, Sugar in the Morning or Sugar Time and, and what he thought about it, because it, it came out, it was, a, you know, it was a quite a big hit song, wasn't it? And it came out a good chunk of time before before he died and it and it is it is ludicrously like like his song um i mean i i was talking about this on on the uh in the facebook group to somebody and they told me very authoritatively that that the plagiarism is determined by the number of of notes in sequence or something and there just there just aren't enough there for it to qualify um i'm sure that's true but but it seems outrageous to me that is insufficient to uh to qualify as, as plagiarism um yeah that should yeah, be enough and, and um you know we know that he, he yeah. you know he wasn't above the the odd spurious lawsuit as a means of making money you know he did he did try and sue warner brothers over over that movie you know yeah. and, and it, it just seems incredible to me that he didn't think oh, i might be able to make a buck or two out of this because it is i, I mean i'm sure it was inadvertent I, I very very much doubt somebody actually heard his his tune and thought let's steal that but nonetheless it, it is an absolute um you know, exact transcription, isn't it, of it? Um, I just, I just love to know what he thought when that, when they that turned up on his radio. Yeah, and I'm not sure it is was inadvertent. You know, I mean, it's it's a song that you hear it once, and it it sticks in your head. So it's, I feel like it's very possible. You know, they saw Animal Crackers, and that song was so. I mean, I don't think intentionally they said, "Oh, we're going to steal that song," but I think it may have just been rolling around in their brains since they saw the yeah, movie maybe. or something and. And then it popped out. Well, this has just been such a treat, guys, talking to you about the music of the Marx Brothers on our fifth episode. My goodness, we have some real longevity now. This is We are now the elder statesmen of Marx Brothers podcasting. <laughs> um, particular thanks, of course, to our special guest, Cinco Paul. It's been a damn pleasure. Ah, uh, thanks for having me. I always, you know, whenever I listen to the podcast, I fantasize that I'm there with you. Okay. And so now <laughs> it actually, it actually happened for real. So this has been the best. Well, that's a lesson for the kids out there. If you dream of being on the Marx Brothers Council podcast, who knows? It, it could, could happen. happen. And we'd love to have you back sometime. So let's find another topic that we all can agree on maybe the animated Marx Brothers. Yeah. Or when, or when you devote the podcast to the big store. Oh yeah. I'll be there. (laughs) We are going to do that. So (laughs) don't make a promise. You can't keep. Yeah. You may be the only person willing to talk about it on record. (sighs) Bob. Uh, And, and especially as always, thank you to our listeners, to the members of the Marx Brothers council and the wider world. Uh, Thanks so much for listening for all the positive messages that we've gotten for all those demanding that the podcast become weekly or daily. Yeah. All you have to do is pay three full-time salaries and we'll never stop podcasting. (laughs) Yep. And I'd just like to thank uh, Cinco as well for joining us. Um, And just to say what what a pleasure it's been uh, sort of uh, getting to know Cinco ever since I, I got a a fan letter from him, a fan email from him. Um, 
regarding my book i didn't i didn't get very many of those and to to get one out of the blue from uh, from from such a, an incredibly well-known person was was a delight and even more so in fact was getting another one where he said uh, remember in that that when i first got in touch with you i said i didn't i didn't agree with your take on duck soup but i've watched it again and i'm sort of coming around to your way of thinking i can't tell you what a delight that was so uh, you know i've really enjoyed this um <laughs> do come again thanks also to uh, particularly to to bob our editor because what you're listening to now believe me is not what we recorded a, a, a multitude of sins will have been uh, will have been hidden we've had some uh, some technical issues here so uh, hopefully this will will sound as good as uh, as it always does um yeah that's it from me uh, enjoyed that very much and uh, we'll see you again soon no we won't we'll speak to you again soon because this is not television Well, that brings us down to the end of another one. But before we go, we leave you with what I think we all agree is the greatest piece of music ever associated with the Marx Brothers. Or anybody. Schubert wrote a symphony, too bad he didn't finish it. Gershwin took the chord in G and proceeded to diminish it. I sought a variation on a theme that I thought pretty, and I found my inspiration on the side of the city. The Combs and the Callies, the Campbells and Vermicellis, all form a part of my tenement symphony. The Combs piano, the Callies and their Victrola, all the heart of my tenement symphony. The Campbells come tumbling down the stairs, doodly-ah, doodly-ah, Oh, Marie, oh, Marie, you'll be late for your I dreamed up a grand illusion. It's my tenement symphony in Portland. A kid on the first floor practicing the minuet. The kid on the second floor yelling for the dinner that he didn't get. The guy on the third floor awakened from his slumber by the guy on the fourth floor practicing. The 
Yeah. 